So Hebrews chapter 12, this is, has been our foundational text, verses 10 through to 14. For they verily, or truly, speaking about our natural fathers or parents, for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure as they thought was appropriate. But the Lord, when he chastens us, it's for our profit that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous. And everybody said amen. But grievous. If it's not grievous, it's not working. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised by. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet. That places that responsibility on each of us as individuals. We've got to make straight paths for our feet. Lest that which is lame or those things that haven't been straightened up be turned out of the way and get us off track but let it rather be healed follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord Amen so our series thus far has focused or built on the platform of the holiness of God acknowledging that God alone is holy pure, righteous, perfect however we try to Define that he alone is holy of himself or is the source of his own holiness. We become holy in his sight when we are born again and filled with his Holy Spirit. We come to him as sinners. We hear the message of the gospel that we are sinners. That's the first part of the message of the gospel. We leave that out. We miss it all. But we come to him and we, uh, we are informed that we are sinners but that he died for us that he might take our sins away. We are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ to have our sins washed away. And I would challenge you this morning, if you've never been baptized in Jesus' name, you need to think about that and consider what the Scripture would say to you today. Not what the traditions of men would say, but what the Word of God would say. And when we are washed clean, the Bible says that this promise is unto you, talking about the Holy Ghost, and your children, to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call, which is taken from Acts chapter 2, verse 39. And so we become filled with a Holy Spirit, which means that in our freshly reborn, regenerated state, God looks at us, sees us as righteous and holy in His sight, not because of our own abilities or our own performance, but the Bible uses the word imputes or imputed which means he credits righteousness to your account where once your account had was full of sin he washed that account clean and then he credits us with righteousness that he gives to us and so it is very important that we understand that anything that is holy or righteous in us comes from him or comes from the changes that he brings about in us if you are able to acquire holiness on your own we would not need Jesus Christ. But I think we understand this morning how desperately we need Jesus. And so once we've been born again, we grow and need to grow in spiritual maturity and in relationship with Jesus. That means that we should be being continuously changed or transformed by the Word of God and the Spirit of God. I mention those two separately on purpose because they work together. They are not options. It is the Word of God that is confirmed by the Spirit of God and vice versa. 
They work together. If you find that what you're feeling in the spirit is contrary to what you're reading, what you're feeling needs to be checked. Because the word of God doesn't change. And it is this word that was spoken to us by the spirit of God. Scripture lets us know that the people that wrote this book were done, did so under the anointing of the Holy Ghost. And so God doesn't have a multiple personality. He doesn't change his mind. So what the, his spirit does and his word will work together and confirm what he is doing. It is the spirit of God that takes the word of God and surgically inserts it into our hearts. The word by itself is powerful, but when it's anointed by the spirit of God, God is able to penetrate our hearts and begin to bring about the change that he wants in our lives. Amen. And as I just said, this transformation takes place at the level of our hearts and our minds. We participate. We, we established in the first lesson that, that although we do not make ourselves holy, that God does want us to be involved in the process. He says, be ye holy, for I am holy. And it talks in, I think it's 2 Corinthians 7 and 1, about how we need to, in an ongoing fashion, cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and of the spirit. There is an ongoing work that God does in us, that we draw closer to Him. Not, not in the sense that it's like, oh, I'm, I'm making holiness points this week. But rather, as I draw close to Him, I separate myself from things that do not please Him. I behave, think, and every aspect of my life needs to be changed in a manner that pleases God and that honors God and that allows God to change me. Now, if you meet somebody, if you, you know, if you're a young guy and you meet a young lady and you begin to have feelings for her and you find out that she hates cats and you have a cat or maybe she's even really badly allergic to cats and you have a cat, at some point, one relationship has got to give. It's either with her or the cat. And that's a little bit what it's like with the Lord. When we, we, God will bring us to places in our walk with Him where He will say, you know, that's something that I think you need to remove out of your life. And you have to make a decision, what matters more? Amen. And so that's how we are involved when we talk about living a life of holiness. We're not talking about us making ourselves spotless. We're talking about, I love Him. I want to please Him. I want to grow. You know, if, if you've been married for a little while, you, if you're smart, you learn over time that there are things that while they may not be life and death or right and wrong, for the benefit of your relationship, you remove them. If every decision you make is only about whether or not it's, you know, grounds for divorce you're not going to have a healthy relationship. But you men all understand that if your wife likes the laundry put somewhere or something put away a particular way in the house or whatever it might be, it, you might say, well, she can't tell me what to do and I'm the head of the house and you don't understand that probably, obviously. But she's not going to hopefully throw you out because you don't pick up your socks. But if she wants you to pick up your socks and you love her, if you've got two brain cells to rub together, you'll pick up your socks. Why? Because you love her and you care about the relationship. And so when we 
make decisions about how we live and how we behave and all that sort of stuff as far as holiness is concerned. That's what it's about. It's not about making ourselves acceptable. It's about I love him and I want to please him and I want to live in a fashion that reflects him, not the sinful world that I'm living in. Amen. Some of you men this morning, if you pick up your socks when you go home, you've got what you needed. Amen. Ladies, you can thank me later. But we we participate in the process by choosing to surrender ourselves completely to the Lord and by making decisions about what we allow into our hearts and minds and how we allow the environment and culture in which we live to influence us. And as I have hopefully emphasized again and again and again in this series, it must take place from the inside out or we are simply experiencing a makeover. Amen. And as our hearts and our minds are transformed, the way that we think is changing. And when the way that we think changes, it produces observable outcomes, or what the Bible calls fruit, that will affect thought, speech, actions, etc., etc. One of the verses we've used in this series was Psalms 19 and 4, which says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. If we can get our, the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart acceptable in his sight, everything else will kind of take care of itself. Because the way I think is the way I speak. And it's the way I act. We spoke last week about forgiveness being a requirement of holiness. And the dangers of bitterness destroying us. We concluded the last lesson with communion last Sunday morning recognizing that Jesus, as our ultimate example, did not open his mouth when he suffered, when he was abused, and when he was falsely accused. Amen. In this lesson, in the final lesson of the series, I'm going to cover a reasonable amount of territory. I'm not going to deep dive on it too much, but I want to touch a few things. I'm going to be teaching on the subject of how we present ourselves as Christians. In, in the big picture of the things that we've covered, that's the least important but it's the one that catches everybody's attention the most as soon as you start to talk about it. it says something to us about human nature amen and so as part of this lesson i'm going to present what i believe are standards that as apostolic christians we should hold ourselves to anyway however as i said in the first lesson i'm, I'm, I'm emphasizing this because i don't want anybody taking this the wrong way anyone who tells you that you can make yourself holy by following a list of rules or keeping a set of standards does not understand the scripture that's why I've tried to encourage everybody to be here for the whole series to avoid having an imbalanced understanding of this topic and if you've missed any of the last three four Sunday mornings where the Peter ministered in the middle there they are on the podcast and you can listen to those and if this is a subject that you are interested in a subject we should all be interested in and you haven't been here please put all the pieces together Amen so there are two extremes that we must avoid as Christians when we think about how we dress. The first extreme is that it doesn't matter at all. It doesn't matter whatever we wear. That God is only interested in the heart, not the actions or the outside of the person. Unfortunately, this point of view fails to remember that it's our heart and the actions on the outside that got us in need of salvation in the first place. The second extreme, at the other end of the scale, is to focus only on the outward appearance of a person to consider their spirituality. That's legalism. 
Legalism is where a set of rules governs or measures a person's walk with God, and that in many ways was the failing of the Old Testament covenant. It does not matter, and this may seem a little humorous, but you'll get the point. It does not matter how much you dress up a corpse. It will not give it life. The life must come from within first. If we are not living inside, it doesn't matter what you do to the outside. Spiritual life begins at the level of the who we are. Amen. We also need to keep in mind that we are not all born again on the same day. Each of us are individuals. We have an individual unique walk with God. We're all growing at different rates. We've been walking with God for different lengths of time, which means that we should not all look exactly the same or all behave exactly the same. We're growing. If you have children of different ages, you are setting yourself up for frustration and damaging your children by expecting them all to be exactly the same. You want your four-year-old to match your 10-year-old at school? Unless the four-year-old's kind of child prodigy level, it's not going to happen. We have to allow them to grow where they are at. Amen. But then the flip side of that is we don't allow our four-year-old to behave like our one-year-old. So we've got to have that balance in the middle. Amen. Please, I'm going to give some instruction as, as your pastor this morning along the way. Please don't ever tell another person how to present themselves or tell them that the way that they appear may or may not disqualify them from being involved in some capacity in the church. I've had to deal with that before. It upsets me greatly when I find out that somebody is told, oh, well, you won't be able to do this or that. That is nobody's business. Amen. We do have some requirements for involvement in certain ministries, but those are my responsibility to take care of, so you don't need to trouble yourself with those. When it comes to how we ought to present ourselves, this always is a very quiet lesson, and that's okay. I'm going to challenge some thinking. I know I will. There'll be some of you that'll think, well, I don't agree with that. I think that's wrong. I think that's to this or to that. There might be some others that think, well, that's too not enough of this and not enough of that. But I'm going to do my best to present what I think is a balanced biblical approach. What you do with that, that's between you and Jesus. Amen. But there are two scriptural principles that guide us when we think about as Christians how we ought to present ourselves. The first is gender distinction, or the idea that men should dress like men and women should dress like women. And the second is modesty. Let's deal with gender distinction first. Unless you live under a rock, you know that gender is the current hot-button topic of our society. It is an incredible uh, issue in the world in which we live. And I'm not going to get into that this morning because that's a lesson all by itself, which we will get into in the future. Let me take a step out of my notes for a second and just say, regardless of how you meet somebody, whether it's different sexuality, whether it's a gender situation, whatever it is, that person has made the image of God. And you need to treat that person with the respect of that fact. Now, they may be a li- that, that image may be a little bit messed up, but such were some of you. And so regardless of how you, you meet somebody that's got one of the many various forms of gender confusion going on, you always treat that person with the same respect you would anybody else. Our job is to reach to people and to demonstrate the love of God to them. Amen. We do not compromise or negotiate with what the Word of God calls sin. 
but we have a responsibility for how that is packaged. Amen. The biblical principle is that God made men and women distinct from each other, different from each other. Genesis 1 and 27. I'm going to keep Sister Vanessa busy back there on the projector. So, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him male and female created he them. The next chapter, Genesis 2 and 18, And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. This expression, help meet, somehow along the way has been mashed up and made into one word, help meet, which is actually not a word. It's not accurate. Uh, to help us understand what it actually means, the New King James Version of Genesis 2.18 says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. That word meet, is we, we use it today. It's like, you know, I'll meet you at the shop. I'll meet you at your house. Um, we'll have a meeting. But that word meet also means suitable or appropriate. That's why John the Baptist told the scribes and the Pharisees to bring forth fruit, meat for repentance. He said, you need to demonstrate that you're serious if you think I'm going to baptize you. That's what he was saying. So the word comparable, according to the Oxford Dictionary, is able to be likened to another, similar of equivalent quality and worthy of comparison. So God made men and women to, to complement. It's fascinating that Adam, even in his sinless state, needed Eve. That God produced, he didn't just go, well, I'll just run Adam through the photocopier and there will be two of them. He made Eve so that in that relationship there would be a complementary situation. Not a servant, not a, you know, some people read a help me, you know, she's, you know, gives me a hand around the place. If that's your perspective, God forgive you. But he made, it's comparable of equivalent quality. Amen. And we're going to get into some of the family in the new year, so we won't spend a lot of time on that today. But let, let's consider some scriptures, just a few, that make it clear that men and women, although similar, are distinct and not interchangeable. Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 13. For man also lie with mankind as he lies with a woman. Both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. Deuteronomy chapter 22 and verse 5 says a woman shall not put on that which pertaineth to a man neither shall a man put on a woman's garment for all that do so are abomination unto the Lord so they're Old Testament New Testament Matthew 19 and 4 and he being Jesus answered and said unto them have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female and then 1 Corinthians chapter 6 Verses 9 and 10 says, Know you not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Don't kid yourself. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. So what we read here from both Old and New Testaments is that there is a clear distinction in the sight of God between men and women regarding sexuality and presentation. To break that down a little bit more in, the, in that New Testament passage, in 1 Corinthians 6 and 9, there are two expressions that he used. One is the word effeminate. The other one is abusers of themselves with mankind. Abusers of themselves with mankind simply is homosexuality. Effeminate in English means feminine. 
or having characteristics typical of a woman. The Greek word that it is translated from means soft or delicate and is also used referring to young male prostitutes, which were very heavily involved in idol worship. Obviously, I think it's obvious, it isn't wrong for a woman to be feminine. So we can safely conclude that the effeminate part is directed towards men. The principle of distinction between men and women is scriptural. It is reflected in both testaments, letting us know that it is significant in the sight of God throughout time. Romans chapter 1, and I won't read it for the sake of time, but it shows us the downward spiral that occurs and has occurred as mankind has turned their backs on God and pursued many forms of idolatry, including the worship of self and the pleasures of the flesh. Humanity has always had the freedom to choose to disobey or violate the laws of God, but it does not remove the consequences of those laws. God will let you make a choice, but you don't get a pass on what comes with that. You can reject the idea that there is a law of gravity, but if you jump off a cliff, you're still going to die. Whether you accept that law or not, it's not going away. The consequences remain. Amen. And mankind has rejected the design and purpose of sexuality and has perverted it to a point that it has produced the chaos of gender and sexuality that we are now surrounded by. The, one of the, the really challenging parts of the current thinking of society is that there are no longer any boundaries. And so new ideas and descriptions and definitions are being made up regularly based simply upon how somebody feels. There are no parameters anymore. It, it's just, it's very, very destructive. And I will teach on that at another time. Amen. God's laws have not changed. Consequences of disobedience are horrific and will only get worse. So, with many different kinds of clothing in many different cultures around the world, how do we know what we should wear? If you've traveled at all, you'll know that not the whole world dresses like you and I. You can go to places where they wear something that's very, very different. Amen. And the answer to that question is that we should dress in a fashion that the culture that we live in recognizes as belonging to our gender. So that when in the culture in which we live, we can identify our gender by the way we present ourselves. Even in cultures where the garments of each gender are similar. That's what people often say. Well, what about in the Middle East? Well, they all wear long robes. Even in those cultures, there are almost always clear distinctions in how they dress. It was that culture that the Lord said, if a man dresses in woman's clothes, it's an abomination. So he obviously expected them to know the difference. It was that kind of a culture, amen, that Moses was writing to in Deuteronomy. In the Western world, which we are a part of, the historical distinction has always been a skirt or a dress for ladies and pants or trousers for men. Now, when somebody like me as a pastor makes that statement, the usual reaction is that people will say, well, women have been wearing pants and trousers for years, for decades now. Surely it doesn't count anymore. Can I have that picture on the wall, please? That photograph was taken at the Academy Awards earlier this year. Uh, the Oscars, some of you might know them better as that. Um, that gentleman wearing the dress deliberately wanted to shock 
I'm not assuming that. I've read an interview. I'm not just assuming what he thought. To push the envelope, we might say, to make a point to break down boundaries. Now, when you and I see that photo, if we're honest, it's a little confronting, isn't it? It makes us feel a little bit, ooh, that's a bit strange. It's a bit awkward. It's confronting. And we, the reason that we find it confronting, you can leave it there so it's confronting. Thanks, Vanessa. The reason we find it confronting is because a man is wearing a garment that we normally associate only with women. Now, if you want to see crazy stuff, look in the fashion world. There are no boundaries anymore. Society right now is currently challenging many of the boundaries that have been accepted for years. You may have seen in the news in the last 12 months in this country, there have been boys wearing skirts to school to protest against school's clothing policies. They're standing with the girls at their school. So they wear skirts to protest. This is the kind of world that we live in. And what some of us realize, but some of us may not, is the same reaction that we feel when we look at that picture was how people felt when ladies first started wearing pants or trousers. You can kill the picture, thanks, Vanessa. We've made everybody uncomfortable enough. In fact, Google it yourself. There are quite a large number of recorded instances in the Western world where women were arrested for wearing trousers in public. It was as shocking then as that dress is now. But what happens over time is we get used to things. Now, we could discuss the origins, and I know I'm challenging some people. I can feel it. We could discuss the origins of women wearing trousers and consider such things as, if you look at history, you'll find that women went to work in industries that previously only men worked in in times like the Second World War. We could talk about the women's liberation movement. I have no problem with the quality of genders, but the women's liberation movement is not of God. Um, That's on the recording, so I've said it. We could talk about various other shifts in thinking and standards of our societies. But in our current society, right now, 2019 Western world, almost 2020, when a child professes feelings of gender dysphoria, what that means simply is that the way they feel is different to the body that they're in. For example, a little boy is born with a male body, feels like he is a girl, and vice versa. When a child professes to have those feelings and the parents and supposed experts' approach is to support those feelings, the first thing they will do is they will take that little boy who feels like a girl, put him in a dress, and let his hair grow long. If it's a little girl, they'll put her in pants and a button-up shirt usually and cut their hair short. Now, what that tells us What that tells us is that even in this messed up sinful world that we live in, our world still, at least subconsciously, considers skirts and dresses to be feminine and pants to be masculine. Now, these are the same people that will tell you there is no such thing as gender and it doesn't matter how you dress, but the moment they endorse somebody's change, they dress them exactly. You can't have it two ways. It either matters or it doesn't. Amen. Amen. No doubt, again, there's a, very, very, a variety of opinions. But what is not up for discussion this morning? Now, how we interpret all that is obviously up for discussion. But what is not up for discussion is that it matters to God. That is not up for discussion. 
And while we may no longer be under the Old Testament law, Deuteronomy 22 and 5 lets us know that one gender dressing like another was an abomination in the sight of God. And if the principle of distinction of gender is consistent throughout Scripture, then it must be important to God. Amen. The question that we have to answer as apostolic Christians is, how can we dress in a fashion that is clearly recognizable as masculine or feminine? That's our challenge. If we're going to take this principle from the Word of God, how do we dress in a fashion, if the Lord says it matters, and I believe He does, then how do we make that choice? Now, again, we're talking about our culture. If we were in Pakistan, I'd be talking about a whole different set of parameters. Um, But in, in our Western culture, a skirt or a dress is still easily recognizable as being feminine attire, as our photo reflected and as how you felt when you saw that photo. It's still recognized as belonging on ladies, at least for the time being. Give it a little time and watch what happens. But what do we recognize as being clearly masculine? What do we recognize? If it isn't pants or trousers, then what is it that is clearly masculine? In our, if our sinful society still subconsciously recognizes that pants and trousers are masculine, shouldn't we also as the church? If this messed up world is still able to distinguish between the two, shouldn't we as well? Amen. Shouldn't we take the position that our men should not wear feminine garments? and that our women should not wear masculine garments to honor the distinct way in which God made us. Now, this is a hypothetical, but this is by no means far-fetched or a great imagination. Parents, if you have a son, those of you that have young children, particularly if you've got boys and girls, if your son comes home from school in a few years and asks you to buy him a skirt, what will you say? I'm hoping you'd say no. But when he asks you why not, because everyone knows that kids always ask why not, they don't just go, okay, I'm going to be a good kid and accept your directive. They always say, why not? And they usually say, so-and-so has one. (laughs) What will you say? If you tell that little boy that skirts are for girls and not for boys, and then he asks you, well, then why does my sister wear pants like I do? What will you say? The truth is that, unfortunately, a lot of Christianity has accepted a double standard. If we consider pants and trousers acceptable on our daughters, why can't our sons wear skirts? How can you logically defend that? Very quiet. These things were common, normal standards in almost every kind of church. Even society, if you go back a little way. But now they've been done away with. Now, I am certainly not suggesting that we should be going out of our way to appear as old-fashioned. That's not the point. But when we consider the current fashions, when you go to buy yourself or your family clothing, you need to have some principles that do not change, some filters, some, some things that you guide. In fact, you know, there, there is a Facebook page, and I've mentioned this before, but if you want to look it up, it's called Women Wear Pants, Let Men Wear Skirts. That's actually the name of a Facebook page. You'll be surprised but it is just another part of the blending of genders that is being promoted in our world. Remembering one of the principles we taught in the early lessons was that holiness 
involves separation from this world. In other words, there is a gap. There are things that we are not involved in. The church is to be counter-cultural. If the world is governed and directed by the carnal thinking of man, and the Spirit of God cannot be compatible with that, and we want to be led by the Spirit of God, there has to be counter-cultural in the church. It's not about deliberately being opposite. It's about being godly. It's not about saying, well, if, if green is the current popular color, I'm going to wear brown. It's, but it's about how I'm, what are my guidelines? Because the world has very few. And if they... See, some people think that as long as I am a certain distance from... Let's say that the piano represents the world and its thinking, and for this morning's lesson, it's fashion. As long as I'm this far away, I'm okay. But the problem is that's moving. That's moving. So I have, if I'm measuring my distance from the world, not my distance to God, I'm staying the same distance, but I'm getting a whole lot further away from Jesus. So I need to be going, how close can I get to God? You know, people ask the question, well, how far can I go and still be okay? It's the wrong question. The question is, what can I do to please God? You know, if, if you walk along a cliff, there is no guarantee that you will fall off. But if you don't walk along a cliff, there is a guarantee that you won't. It's very hard to fall off a cliff if you're not on the edge. We need to be thinking, how can I please God? Not, well, how far can I go and still be okay? God is not the tax office. You know, when we think about paying our tax, if we're Christians, we want to do what's right, but not a cent more. Amen? <laughs> we want to obey the law, but not a single cent more. I'll pay my tax, but I better get back what I'm owed. Too many people approach God like the tax office. I'm going to do just what is required and not any, and a little bit. He's not the tax office. He's the one that gave his life for us, that died to make us holy. Amen. I know I'm challenging some thinking, but I want you to consider what I'm saying and the biblical principles that are behind it. Let's get into another subject that also connects with gender distinction. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to talk about hair for a moment. If you disagree with what I'm teaching this morning, that's okay. That's, that's your privilege any Sunday. But don't leave the church over. At least come and talk to me about it and see if we can establish what the Lord wants. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting at verse 1. It says, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. But I would have you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of the woman is the man, the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying with his head covered dishonors his head. Every woman that prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, for that is even all one as if she were shaven. For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, for as much as he is the image and glory of God, the woman is the glory of the man. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man, man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. Unfortunately, a little bit confusing passage. 
For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. For as the woman is of the man, so is the man also by the woman, but all things of God. Judge in yourselves, is it comely that a woman pray unto God uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him? But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given her for a covering. Now we could take this passage and teach for several weeks on it, but because it's part of a series, we're just going to touch on some points. So a few things that I want to establish before I go any further. The passage is primarily about the divine order of creation, including the fact that God made male and female, and it's about the relationship between husband and wife. Sometimes the, the words man and woman here are translated from the, same, from the same Greek word that is also translated as husband and wife. And so when it talks about being in submission and authority, it's not between genders, it's in relationship. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that until another lesson. Amen. It is a, there's a strong focus in this passage of being in submission to the appropriate authority in our lives, spiritual authority. The authority is significant when you are in private, talks about praying, or in a public setting, which is talking about prophesying. And again, I'm, I'm just skimming here. But there is a viewpoint that some people have, and you'll see in some very traditional places, that the covering that's referred to could be a veil or a scarf. You go to some places, you'll see all the ladies in the church with a scarf over their heads. But that idea is disqualified by verse 15, which clearly identifies the hair as the covering, not the scarf. So there has been much written about the spiritual significance of women's hair. It apparent, you can look into this if you want to, but it apparently plays an important role in witchcraft. In some cultures, women's hair is shaved as a sign of grief and others as a sign of shame. Clearly, without getting into each verse and pulling each verse apart, there are some things that we can take just on face value. From the passage, it is obvious that it is right for a woman to have long hair and for a man not to have long hair. I think if you read those verses, that's pretty straightforward. Where there is difference of opinion amongst people is what does it mean by short and what does it mean by long? For a man to have short hair, it must obviously be cut. I don't think that's a revelation. Different times and fashions have seen some variety in what was considered short hair for those of you old enough to have been adolescents in the 70s. You know, guys wore their hair at a length back then that they considered short that today we would consider long. The trends that went through society. Amen. You know, nowadays you go for a haircut, what do you, you know, give me a short back and sides. That's what's often said unless you go somewhere fancy. But when it comes to our ladies, what is long hair? And that might seem like an easy question, but it's not as easy as it seems because every individual lady has a certain length that their hair will grow to. You can look into the science of all that, cycles of hair growth, and etc., etc. Some is shorter, some is longer. Now, not only that, different nationalities and cultures, because of their varying physical traits, will experience very different hair growth. Some people have straight hair, some people have wavy hair, some people have loose curly hair, some people have tight curly hair. We're all different. Uh, one of the examples that I've seen firsthand is some of the Papuan ladies in New Guinea. Their hair doesn't grow very long at all. It's quite short and tightly curled on their heads. So there is no way 
that we can say, well, a certain length is long and anything below that is short. Because wherever we put that marker, and this is where legalism comes in, if, I, if we decide, you know, we have a church meeting and we have a vote and we're not going to do it, so don't worry, and we decide that right there, that's long hair. Well, there are some ladies, because the way the hair goes, would never reach the mark. There are other ladies that could cut half the hair off and still reach the mark. So how is that even a balanced approach? You understand where I'm coming from? Amen. 1 Corinthians 11 and 6 says, For if a woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. Again, covering, verse 15 lets us know the covering is talking about long hair. Greek scholar Dr. Marvin Treese says that the words in this verse, shorn or shaven, mean cut or shaved. And many of the modern translations use those words, are very, very similar words. And it's all good to study Greek and get into the exact meaning of the words and debate verbs and text and all that stuff, but I'm not educated enough in Greek to be able to do that. But simply from this passage of Scripture in English, I believe we can make the following statements. Hair length is important to God on both men and women as a token of both our gender roles and our submission to the divine order in marriage. If God says that a man should not or it is a shame for a man to have long hair, then as godly men, we should keep our hair at a length that it could no way be mistaken for anything except short. And if God says that a woman should have long hair, that it is given to her for a covering, that it is a shame for it to be shorn or shaven, then we should allow him to determine its length. Or in other words, not cut it. And just to, un- to balance this a little bit, just like any other outward presentation, going back to this emphasis, if we are not being transformed in our hearts and our minds, then this is all pointless. It's all pointless. Again, you can dress up a corpse, but you can't give it life. If a man has short hair, but is not in submission to the Lord as his head, then his short hair is completely irrelevant. If a woman's not in submission to, the, to her husband in a biblical sense, not in a dictatorial sense, but in a biblical sense, it doesn't matter how long her hair is. It can be dragging on the floor. These things are tokens that distinguish our gender and our relationships. Amen. Happy to discuss that further with anybody that wants to. Inside first, then outside. Inside first, then outside. Half past 11. Wow. We've considered gender distinction. Let's move on. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. We're going to talk about modesty. If I'm challenging your thinking, and I don't have a problem with doing that, I have no desire to offend anybody. But if I'm challenging your thinking, the question we have to answer is, where does my thinking come from? Because if it's governed by society, then we may need to have a fresh look at that. But if it's from the Word of God, then we need to make sure that we're lining up with the Word of God. First Timothy 2 and verse 8 says, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath or uncontrolled anger and doubting. In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broidered hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. I've taught on this passage before. 
it, verse 8 speaks to men, verse 9 and 10 speak to ladies, but the principles apply to both of us. It doesn't mean, men, you can't be angry. Ladies, you can cut sick and be as angry as you want. But that's not what it's saying. It's talking about how wrath is predominantly a masculine problem and excessive adornment without being unkind is predominantly a feminine problem. Although, when you look in the world today, all that's leveling out. So just as gender distinction was normal in our society not so long ago, so was the practice of dressing modestly. In fact, those who dressed immodestly were usually associated with people of questionable morals. Not so today. Not so today. The promotion of sexuality is rampant in fashion, in all forms of media, and throughout our culture. Children are being sexualized. They use sexuality to advertise just about every product you can imagine. It has nothing to do with gender or sexuality, but they'll use it somehow to market something. Sell you a new lawnmower with a picture of a lady with not much... What's she got to do with the lawnmower? But they know that it appeals to the lust of flesh. Our society has sexuality at every level. And, uh, you know, we we can trace some of the significant developments in these things back to social and sexual revolutions. We can talk about the 1960s. We can talk about the 1970s. We can talk about the the hippie era we can talk about all of that stuff all of it is born out of the lust of sinful flesh and uh, i don't think anybody any sensible person would deny that our society is more sexualized than ever before sex has been taken out of the confines of a godly relationship between one man and one woman and has been cheapened perverted and abused the consequences remembering god's laws have consequences the consequences of this are that we are living in a sexually dysfunctional, immoral society. When Adam and Eve sinned, the first thing they became aware of was their nakedness. It was the first thing. They were naked before they sinned. But when they sinned and it impacted the way that their hearts and minds operated, they became aware of their nakedness. The Bible lets us know that they attempted to cover themselves, but God did not consider their attempts acceptable And he provided something that was. Now, there's a lot in that because there was blood that was shed, which was a type of our covering of our sin. But it also lets us know that human thinking is not the same as God's thinking. Amen. So if we are striving to be a holy people, a people that want to please God, a people that want to be separate from the world and to be counterculture, how do we apply principles of modesty? Because if we say, yes, we believe we should be modest, what does that mean? I don't know, but I believe it. A principle without a practical application is a waste of time. We have to go, this is the principle. How do I apply that to my life? Amen. Now these, these, you can call these standards, you can call them whatever you like, but these are things that I think are not only biblically founded, but they just make sense. And they apply to men and women. The first thing is the length of our clothing. I think the best application is that clothing should cover our knees. When we consider the scripture seems to associate nakedness with the uncovering of the thigh or the uncovering of the leg, as well as historical examples from society, covering our knees is simply a practical, sensible standard. Why? Because if our clothing covers our knees, even when we are seated, we're less likely to expose our upper legs and further. 
that's not a great revelation. That's just practical and common sense. Amen. Uh, ladies, you wear a skirt or a dress that has a split up the back, you've got to be careful with that. You know, your skirts to your ankles, your splits to your hip. No explanation necessary. Men, that applies to us. Australian men are generally very immodest. If you're going to wear shorts, men, I think the same standard that applies to our ladies applies to us. They need to cover our knees. Why? For the same reason. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but I'm sure we've all seen somebody wearing shorts with their legs crossed, and we've seen more than we want to see. If you don't understand what I'm talking about, ask your neighbor. They can tell you afterwards. But when our garments, whether male or female, are above our knees and we sit with our legs crossed, it's very easy to expose ourselves inappropriately. This is not acceptable for men or for women. Talking about in the kingdom of God. Sometimes we don't realize how much we expose ourselves when we wear things that are shorter than they should be. Amen. And you make it uncomfortable for people trying to have a conversation with you. Our shirts, our tops, whatever you want to call them, should not be sleeveless and should cover most of our upper arms. It is unpleasant and immodest for people to see your armpits. I don't want to see your armpits. And you don't want to see mine. Trust me. But also, it's unpleasant when ladies wear sleeveless shirts, your underwear is often exposed. I'm being very practical. If you came for Hebrew and Greek and Revelation, that's later. Today is practical. Okay? And if you think about what I'm saying, it makes sense. Amen. We should not wear shirts or tops that have low or baggy necklines or are loosely buttoned. Gentlemen, just because you have a different anatomy from your wife, your shirt shouldn't be unbuttoned down here. Do it up. Amen. I think we're going to sell a lot of copies of this message. Tightness. If clothing is tight or close-fitting, it draws attention to the curves of our bodies. It's common sense. Some of us have extra curves. But as a general principle, as a general principle, the curves of our bodies are associated with sexuality. It is immodest to dress in a fashion that draws attention to our bodies or stimulates inappropriate desires, whether unintentionally or not in others. Whether it's skirts, trousers, shirts, tops, if it's tight, it's not right. I've said this to the men before. If you want to go to the gym and be the next Arnold Schwarzenegger, have at it. But don't show up wearing a T-shirt that's three times too small because you want everybody to know you went to the gym. That's just vanity. That's pride. It's vanity. It's look at me. I'm awesome. No, look at you. You're full of yourself. Amen. If you're not sure, ask your spouse. Ask them, is this too tight? Can you see through this? But I tell you, let me give you a word of wisdom, brethren. This is especially for the men. If you don't want to upset your wife, and you say, no, it's fine, and then a sister in the church is a good friend and says, man, that's a bit tight. When you get home, she's going to say, I asked you, and you're going to be in trouble. Word to the wise. Amen. If you're a new Christian, and you need, this is a very serious comment, if you're a new Christian and you need some help, ladies, you can speak to my wife. 
one of the other ladies in the church that understands these things. If you're a brother and you can talk to me, I'll let you know. I've told the, the young men before, and you'll laugh at this, but I've told the young men, if you're wearing pants that are so tight that when you kneel at the altar, your underwear is showing at the back, I'll tell you to go and sit down. We don't need to see that. It's called underwear for a reason. There's a reason. We don't want to see it. It's under. You see, the fact that we teach these things in church reflects our society. Churches didn't used to have to teach this stuff. Parents and grandparents taught this stuff. You know, you go back a generation or two, if a young person stepped out in a modest fashion, one of their relatives would grab them by the ear and say, get back inside and sort that out. But nobody cares, nobody has any boundaries anymore. So, But the principles, have, where do you think your grandparents and great-grandparents' principles came from? This hasn't changed. Amen. Amen. Keeping standards like this in our lives is not always easy. And I'll be honest, sometimes it's more challenging for our ladies than for our men. If you think about our society, that has a lot to do with the way men's minds work and the difference between men and women's minds. We ought to teach our children these principles. You know, you should raise your children that this is normal. If you only worry about dressing modestly and gender appropriately when you come to church, you can forget your kids thinking it's important when they get older. Won't happen. Is it tough? Yeah, it is. You go to schools, the uniform policy is like, seriously? You're going to let the kids wear that? You've got to do things. You've got to go the extra effort. Both of my kids went to state schools. The high school that our kids went to, the uniforms that were available for sale were simply not acceptable with the principles that we live by. I had to get online and together with Cassandra, we found a private school across town that sold the same color outfit as the high school she was in and had more modest apparel and we went there and I spent far too much money buying uniforms from private schools to uphold principles of separation. Why why does it matter? Because you put that in your children. If you don't put it in them, they won't value it. You've got to teach your children. Children should grow up being aware of these things that there's a way that we... You know, you think about sports activities. People say, well, what about when I go to the beach? Are you suddenly protected by some force field when you're not wearing any clothing modesty applies everywhere every situation sports leisure whatever it may be if it means you can't participate without compromising your principles don't participate do it under the lord amen okay i'm going to keep moving the Sunday school teachers told me that they're happy if I go along because it gives them lots of time to practice. First Peter chapter 3. I'm trying to cover a lot of territory this morning. I could spend a whole lesson on each one of these subjects, but I just want to touch on them a little bit each. First Peter chapter 3 and verse 1. Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word... They also may, without the word, be won by the con- conversation or the lifestyle of their wives. That conversation of the wives is not their wives nagging them to come to church. It's talking about how they live. While they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. Who's adorning? Talking about the wives. Let it not be that outward adorning of plaiting the hair. Uh, when you study that out, it, they used to put a lot of valuables and fancy things. Well, it doesn't mean you can't have a plait if you've got long hair and of wearing of gold and of putting on of apparel but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit 
which is in the sight of God of great price. Amen. Let's finish it off this morning with talking about makeup and jewelry. And again, some of this might seem old fashioned, but do a little bit of work in history and find out how churches used to hold to some of these things. Both passages that we've read in First Timothy two and in First Peter three discourage believers from making the outward appearance the focus of attraction to others. We are exhorted to focus on the things that we do and the spirit which we do them with being what should be attractive about us. Amen. This is not an instruction to be sloppy or rough with our appearance and come to church looking like you slept in the car park for the last two nights. Well, the Lord knows. That's not what this is talking about. It's not the point of this passage of Scripture. But it is suggesting that the heart and the spirit and character of a person should be that which is considered the most valuable part of their appearance. Makeup and jewelry both place the emphasis on the exterior and are a product of desire, whether conscious or subconscious, for people to be attracted to or impressed by our exterior. They represent vanity and an imbalanced focus on our outward shell or outward appearance. They represent extravagant expense or at least implying extravagant expense, like fake jewelry. Anybody ever bought a Rolex from Bali? You know it's a cheap piece of junk. You know it's going to be lucky to keep time for a week. But hey, it says Rolex. It's the appearance of luxury. That's why people do it. That's why you go to these places and they sell you imitation this and imitation that because we want to look like we're rich, but we don't want to spend the money. Where does that come from? Sinful flesh. Check out my Louis Vuitton bag. You know, when I go to Indonesia, I haven't been for some years, but nearly every young person in one of the churches I was at had a Louis Vuitton Bible cover. Here's a newsflash. Louis Vuitton doesn't make Bible covers. But they had them because they got this guy's initials on the outside. Somehow their Bible's more valuable. I don't, I don't know what the thinking is. But it is the desire to appear a certain way. Amen. Sometimes hundreds and even thousands of dollars are spent to purchase something that is purely a decoration. Its sole purpose is that somebody else can say, Oh, look, you got a Louis Vuitton bag. Don't tell anyone it's a fake. Oh, it's really nice. It's about making people think a certain way. These two passages of Scripture discourage us from using outward things as adornment. We're not Christmas trees. People need to remember us by how we were to them and the way and manner in which we represented the Lord that we serve, not by the fact that you had thousands of dollars worth of bling and a Rolex. This is not the things that need to make our impressions. Makeup, changing or altering your appearance to look better or to feel more confident suggests a deeper problem with how you feel about yourself and also a need to conform to the shallow demands of society. Makeup is very often implied in a manner as to enhance sexuality. That's what it's produced for. I'm not saying that every time somebody uses it, that's their goal, but that's what it's marketed for. It is never spoken of from a positive viewpoint in the Scripture. 
few verses. Proverbs 6 and 25. Lust not after her beauty in thine heart, neither let her take thee with her eyelids. It's Bible. Jeremiah 4 and 30. And when thou art spoiled, these two verses, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, are about the backslidden state of Israel. And when thou art spoiled, what wilt thou do? Though thou clothest thyself with crimson, though you deck yourself with ornaments of gold, though you rent your face with painting, in vain shalt thou make thyself fair. Your corruption can't be hidden. Thy lovers will despise thee, they will seek thy life. Ezekiel 23 and 30, And furthermore, that ye have sent for men to come from far, unto whom a messenger was sent, and lo, they came, for whom you did wash yourself and paint your eyes and decked yourself with ornaments. Now, I am not suggesting, and let me go back a step and say we're all at different stages of our walk with God. This is not designed to uh, condemn or con- make anybody feel bad. We're just teaching the Word. And don't let anybody tell you what you ought to be doing. You want to talk about it? Come and see me. I'm not suggesting that every woman or man, unfortunately as well nowadays, who wears makeup is being seductive. Just as many other behaviors that are discouraged in Scripture are commonplace now and accepted as normal in our society, so also is the wearing of makeup. It's worth noticing that in our Western world not that long ago, makeup, particularly heavy use, was associated with people of questionable morals. Now people will ask you, so pastor, are you saying that if I wear a little makeup and I got a pair of studs in my ears that I'm going to lose my soul? No. A thousand times no. That is not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that as Christians, the better application of the principle is just don't wear it. Don't wear makeup. Limit jewelry to that which is functional. Watches, engagement rings, wedding rings. You know, a wedding ring and an engagement ring has a purpose in our society because it can let somebody know that you're engaged to somebody else or married to somebody else and hopefully, although in this world perhaps not, but hopefully discourage attention from the opposite sex. A watch is obviously functional. Now, here's the thing. It's about what's in our hearts. If you say, well, my pastor said I can wear a watch because it's functional jewelry. And you go out and you buy a $50,000 diamond-encrusted Raymond wheel made in Switzerland, you're missing the point. It's about what's going on in our hearts. Amen. You feel like you'd have to go around with a security guard when you wore that thing anyway. So, A common response to teaching like this, particularly about makeup, is I don't think there's anything wrong with a woman wanting to make herself beautiful. My response to that statement would be, do you think your wife or daughter needs makeup to be beautiful? Answer that carefully. Not only that, we need to consider how society has conditioned people to think. Why has our society conditioned women to believe that to be attractive, they need makeup and jewelry? Isn't it actually oppressive... For women to be told they must alter their God-given appearance for the sake of beauty. People get upset when a pastor teaches against these things, but what is actually happening is that culture, movies, magazines, designers, celebrities, and on and on, have spent decades and billions of dollars convincing women that they are not normal or beautiful unless... there's, There's a fad on some forms of social media now where these brave celebrities put a photo of themselves without makeup. Like, what a hero. You know? But that's a reflection of where our society is at. That, that, that's an act of bravery? The face that God gave you? You're not hiding it for once? 
Think about it. I believe, let me say this very clearly. I believe that we should take care about how we present ourselves. I don't believe that as Christians that we should be rough presented and slobs. I believe if we're going to make a stand against some of the dictates of the fashions of our society, we need to present ourselves in a, in a respectable fashion. And to that end, gentlemen, if your ladies spend a little bit of money on some nice moisturizer and stuff for their skin and you think that's too much money, go and work out how much they would have spent on makeup and jewelry if they went and stop complaining. And every lady said, thank you, Jesus. There's a word from God for my husband. <laughs> we, need to, we need to present ourselves. That's part of respect for yourself, respect for the Lord. It's, it's not about saying, you shouldn't be saying, hey, look at me, I look fantastic today. If you want to tell somebody that, great. Amen. But we need to do so in the fashion that God made us, not in a false, vain, empty manner, pretending to be something that we're not. Here's a newsflash. As we get older, we get wrinkles. We get gray hair. Some of us get no hair. That's just how it goes. Amen. But the world is terrified of aging. And it does everything it can to disguise it. When I was a kid, they used to use an expression, some of you, who's ever heard the expression mutton dressed up as lamb? It's a very unkind expression. It basically means an old person trying to present themselves as a young person. That's what the expression means. And when people are afraid of the fact they're aging, they'll do everything they can. They'll, they'll put it on thicker, they'll put it on brighter, they'll dye it, they'll change it, they'll whatever the case may be. But the Bible declares, Leviticus 19 and 32, Thou shalt rise up before the hoary head and honor the face of the old man and fear thy God. I am the Lord. Proverbs 16 and 31 says, The hoary head is a crown of glory if it be found in the way of righteousness. That word hoary just means gray. So what that's saying is if I'm walking with God and my hair turns gray or hoary, which it is, it's a crown of glory. It is a testimony that God has kept me to the age that I have reached. It's not something to be afraid of or to hide or to try to dye it the color you wear when you were 13. You're not 13 anymore. Amen. And when I was about 18, 19, I used to go to this place where I got my hair cut in Townsville and the lady that cut my hair, every time I went for a haircut, you know, we should just put a couple of streaks in the front here. It'd look really nice. And I used to say, just cut my hair. I'll wait long enough. I've got them naturally now. They've come. God's given me those streaks. They just come naturally now. My kids let me know. Man, Dad, you're getting great. It's like, yes, and they all have your names written on them. But the passages in 1 Timothy and 1 Peter give us a list we can condense that applies to both men and women. I'm, I'm coming to a close. Thank you for your patience. The first thing is that we should all pray and lift up holy hands. That we should have faith, not be doubters. That we should not have wrath or uncontrolled anger. That we should dress modestly with shamefacedness, is the word in the King James. That means modest and respectful. And sobriety, that means showing self-control. That we should not have over-the-top hairstyles where they used to put all sorts of decorations through their hair. That we should not be ordained, adorn, ordained, should not be adorned with precious stones and metals that we should not wear excessively expensive clothing. And again, that's culturally relative. 
what you consider an average cost shirt in some third world countries would be incredibly expensive. That we should be adorned with good works or actions and behaviors that glorify Jesus Christ. There's four lessons we've been teaching about being partakers of his holiness. It is his grace and mercy. It is his blood that cleanses us. It is his Holy Spirit that fills us. It is his righteousness that is credited to our account. And so as I, as we rather begin a new life with Jesus through the new birth, we start a relationship with him where daily he works on us. And as we surrender our lives to him, we are transformed by his word and his spirit. And as our hearts and our minds are changed, our thinking changes along with our priorities and what matters. And what is important to Jesus becomes important to us. How we think, what we say, what we do, where we go, and even how we look. And I want to read one passage in closing. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 16 to 19. This is the, one of the same authors that wrote to us in Timothy. The Apostle Paul said that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, that's where it begins, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and the length and the depth and the height. We will never grasp all of that until we go to be with him. And to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. Why? That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Let's stand together.